Well, it's good to be with you again. Um, we'll do a little bit of introduction for many of those who weren't here back in July. Maybe you were at Disney or someplace in July. God bless you if you were, because it's probably really hot uh, down there. Uh, we dropped off uh, my daughter. She goes to uh, Grand Canyon University, Phoenix, Arizona. It was 111 degrees dropping off my daughter in Phoenix, Arizona. Whew. Dry heat or not, I don't care. That was hot. <laughs> so when I started to cry, they immediately just evaporated because it was so hot down there. Anyway, it was wonderful and uh, it was good. So we'll do a little bit of introduction at the front part because I always feel like you have a guest speaker come in and it's like, well, Eric says he's okay. Shelly says he's eh, but we'll see if, uh, we'll see. no, she gave a nice introduction. So um, anyway, for those, no. so uh, first thing, most important thing, I'm a Hagerstown Tiger. Yeah. So for Hagerstown people, and I was actually at the Colts game, uh, what, two weeks ago? And they had the Hagerstown baseball team down there. So it was an extra surprise. I was like, woo, Hagerstown. I was the only person in my section standing up going, woo-hoo, way to go, Tigers. <clears throat> smallest, smallest town ever to have anyone uh, go to the, uh, go to the uh, World Series. So it was pretty cool. All right, we up on uh, live up here? Can I just click away? Here we go. So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, maturity. We'll talk about that more in a second. So I am soul gardener. That is uh, my calling before God. Uh, so uh, I was asked, where was I? A couple weeks ago and someone came up to me and said, well, how did you know that this is what you're going to do? And I said, you know, probably my first inkling was, and I'll tell a little bit about the story in a minute, uh, in Bible college, Christian college, I was one of those guys in the dorm, and people would come up and go, hey, Mark, do you got a minute? Sure, come on in. Two hours later, <laughs> after listening and prayer, and, and God just kind of set that in motion in my life at a very, very early age. And I think I shared the first Sunday I was here, my mom was here, and her prayer from the time I was in her womb um, much like Hannah in the Bible, is that her firstborn son would be a pastor, would be someone who cared for other people. She did not tell me that till the day of my ordination. You know, and she wasn't one of those Jewish mothers. Oh, you're going to be a doctor someday. No, she wasn't like that at all. She, was, she never even mentioned it to me until the day of my ordination. Isn't that cool? So I have her to blame. And so, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So it's been a, a wonderful that way. But a soul gardener, how I came to that is a number of years ago and working through my own calling, and we talked a little bit about this back in July. So this is kind of who I am as a person. This, ask anyone who knows me well, the, these are the words the people would use. I will endeavor to love and to obey God. I will be a loving and supportive husband. I will be a spiritual leader at home and at work. I will be a thoughtful, caring pastor who seeks maturity and reconciliation. I will strive to be physically healthy. I will be a good and faithful friend. I desire to allow Holy Spirit to give me the fruit of self-control and creativity. So that's who I am. Now, your call is different. Each of you, God has a specific call um, for each of you as well. And so, but that's just a little bit about who I am. And again, if you were here in July, um, 
my uh, lovely wife was here, and I have five children. Um, so the oldest one's in med school. Um, second one is a uh, senior at Taylor. Hey, who was our fiddle player? Who, where's our fiddler? Where? Where at? I can't see him. Where's our fiddler? Is he back there? Do I see him? Is he, he was down here? So, well, no, he was a fiddler for the first song, a violinist after that, because of the whole banjo thing, remember? So he was a fiddler, then a violinist after that. So anyway, that was excellent. That was very good. So my second son is a, um, is a violinist, and uh, he just played actually at Muncie Civic Theater. They put on Hunchback and Notre Dame, and he was the violinist in the pit crew, which was kind of cool. As I mentioned, my third child, uh, Karis, she's one in Phoenix, Arizona, and then um, having a great time. And then uh, my two youngest are actually adopted from Congo. And so they were both freshmen in high school, both taller than me. Again, that doesn't take a lot, but freshmen in high school, taller than I am in that, so, um, in all that. So currently, uh, my life of sharing uh, with people comes at this place. So this is New Life Counseling. This is in Whiteland, Indiana, just south of Greenwood, which I live in Greenwood. And so for five years, uh, my team and I have been caring for people and ministering to people, uh, whether it's pastors, missionaries, believers, non-believers um, coming in. Uh, we actually have been working with the last year uh, with Johnson County. It's called Kick It, and it's young people who are homeless. And so they have a, a ministry to help homeless kids, and they were given a grant and uh, with us. So we get to do counseling uh, with homeless kids and also to do training with their staff. So it's just a, a wonderful time to be able to, to care and to nurture for them. So today's teaching, and as actually comes out of one word out of my thing uh, for my being a soul gardener, uh, a gardener of the souls of men, is the idea of maturity. And I was praying, I was telling Eric about this before we started, and praying about what to talk about today, and wrestling through that. It was the end of last week, and um, it was kind of like the Lord just made it very clear uh, what I was supposed to talk about today. And, and maybe because it's because of Tom getting ready to come to the end of his sabbatical and to slowly move back into pastoral work, I was coming down to uh, what is the end or what is the main goal or vision for any of us? So if you were here this summer, you know, I did two weeks on talking about wilderness. And when you talk about wilderness, the end game is always dependency on Christ. Every time. It always comes back to us and Jesus and dependency on Him. Now, how I frame that, and how I think Scripture, which I'll show you later in that, is, is the idea of maturity. And so if you were to ask me at any time about what is the greatest deficit and issue within the church today, and I would argue in the last 120 years, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes, is the idea of maturity. So over time, the enemy and our own human ingenuity in our hearts have distracted the church from its actual goal. You will go, man, when you used to have Christian bookstores, go to a Christian bookstore, think, you know, I never know. They had one in Newcastle, right? Where was it at? On Broad Street? Off of Broad? What was it called? Anybody remember? Amazing Grace. 
Amazing Grace. Okay. Then there was one before that, way down on 18th Street. Okay. Was it like in a house? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember that now. I know in Richmond at one time, late 80s, early 90s, there were five Christian bookstores um, in Richmond. Anyway, I used to live there kind of in, in the bookstores. Um, you don't find a lot of books about spiritual maturity. You'll find in all other kinds of things. In fact, even pastors I deal with, I say, hey, pastor, what you reading? And they're reading something either on church growth or church leadership. Guess what they're not reading? They're not reading on maturity. Now, I'm going to make a point to you earlier where I think the Bible is very clear that maturity is the goal of every believer. From the moment that you come to know Jesus and the Holy Spirit starts working in your life, the goal is maturity in Christ. And most of the ills of the church today, global, but mostly the United States, is a lack of maturity. If we were mature, we wouldn't have near the problems, right? And actually, let me make this thing. If we were, let's just take the church in Newcastle, Indiana. The church in Newcastle, Indiana, if it was mature, if it was a mature church, how many would there be? One. Only one. I think I passed once I got off 70 and three. I think I at least passed four, maybe five, just off of three, right? And I know once you head down broad, you got more down that way. Anyway, right? Because maturity is about unity. We'll get to that in a minute. So we're going to do a little bit of defining here as far as maturity for that. Christian maturity requires a radical reordering of one's priorities. Changing over from pleasing self to pleasing God and learning to obey God. The key to maturity is consistency. Perseverance in doing those things we know that will bring us closer to God. So we're going to kind of build on that. But here's the phrase I like. Radical reordering. (laughs) Isn't that great? Romans chapter 12, right? Romans chapter 12. Be not transformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, that we may do the good and pleasing will of God. That is a radical (laughs) reordering. Or as John the Baptist said, I have to decrease that he may increase. Thank you. Right? Isn't that what that's about? Yeah. So part of the thing is we don't even have a good definition of what that looks like. So let's talk about some scriptures along the way. 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Ooh, I like that. Isn't that good? Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, thinking, be mature. Right? Be mature. Now, we've got to talk for a second. So the, the, the uh, letter from Paul to the Corinthians are the two largest letters in the New Testament. Do you know why? They were a freaking mess. <laughs> they were a mess. They had a guy sleeping with a stepmom. Nobody cared. 
Everybody knew about it. Drinking coffee in the foyer. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Sleeping with a stepmom? Woohoo! Dragging people to court. You had all kinds of crazy stuff going in there. Eat going and going and sacrificing the idols and eating meat from there. These people were a mess. Ephesians isn't that long. Philippians isn't that long. Why? They weren't near a mess as the church of Corinth. Why? As my friend Josh from Australia would say, he says, the church was in Corinth, but Corinth was in the church. He said it much better because he was Australian. Because anyone talks Australian, sits and go, yeah, speak more Australian, mate. Okay. But it was true. Now, here's the other thing about the church and Corinth. No elders. No elders. No shepherds. There's elders in Ephesus. There's elders in Philippi. There's elders in Derby, the hat capital of the world. Just kidding. There's an elders in Lystra. There's elders in all these churches except Corinth. Why? Well, what happened is Paul would come back through. He would start a church, come back three years later. Him and the apostles would pray. Who are those who have grown to maturity in Christ? Who are the ones with the Spirit of God and living in maturity, making a difference in this body? They prayed, they fasted, they their hands on them, and set them forward as elders. Guess what? Doesn't happen in Corinth. Why? Because they don't grow up. What's Paul trying to tell them in Corinth? Would you guys quit being babies? Would you grow up? I don't like writing these long, long, long letters. I'm tired of it. Right? In fact, he'll later say, shall I come at you with a whip or with love? And by the way, he did prefer love <laughs> to the whip. We'll come to that later. Okay, Ephesians 4. What is the purpose? Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right there, that'll preach. We won't have time for that. So that we may no longer be who? Children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Now, when I started, what did I say? How did we get here to this day in the church of America? Because of bad thinking and bad feelings about things and not seeking maturity, what have we done? We are an infant church in the United States of America because we don't desire to grow up. We all have, in the American church, Peter Pan Syndrome. We do not want to grow up. We want to stay on the island with all the little wild boys and have a good time. That is not the church. Amen. It's not what Jesus died for. Did Jesus do that? I don't think so. I mean, he had fun, but come on, right? This is not who he did. Philippians 3, 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. What language does he have? Press on. How hard? Right? We are going to press on to this goal. What is the goal? Maturity. That 
is the goal. So the goal is living that. Hebrews chapter 5. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, because he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I therefore let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ and go on towards maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. I made my point. Different letters. All the same point. Everything leads up to Paul saying, please, let's grow to maturity. Now, Paul admits his failures with us, right? He goes, there's things I I do. I don't want to do that. The things I don't want to do, I do. Right? He's struggling with his own desire to be mature. Second Corinthians, thorn in the flesh. Right? God, take this away from me. Right? Take it away. God says no. Three times, no. Why? So that he would be dependent on the power of Christ on him. That he may learn that grace is sufficient for you. Yeah, that's a boo-boo. That's a hard way to live. It's hard. But man, don't you want to live that way? I do. Right? To do that. Okay, so we're going to use a little bit of a structure today in order to get us there. So... Back in the 70s, there was an amazing book wrote long before Ruth Haley Barton wrote Silence and Solitude. There was this guy, this Quaker pastor, who wrote a book, Celebration of Discipline. <clears throat> An amazing book. Still go by today. It's like 40 years old and it's still, still doing well. Why? Because it speaks of a language like Ruth Haley Barton that we just kind of pass over sometimes in the Bible. I don't know, words like fasting, solitude, you know, Sabbath, you know, those little words in there. And he brought them back to a new life and a new meaning. And then people have built on that like Ruth Haley Barton does in a most excellent way. He later wrote another book that wasn't near as popular, but I love and has been extremely helpful for me. And it's this book, which I can't remember the whole title, but it's basically streams of something. Okay, and so I put them in circles, even though I love streams. It's hard to talk about six streams, so I talk about six circles. So this is my adaptation of Mr. Richard Foster. Now, in these six circles, which, by the way, are represented on the piece of paper that you were handed in when you come in, And we're just going to quickly unpack these because I want you to be able to have these to help you and me grow into maturity. So real quickly, I'm going to fly through these on the screen. And then we're going to unpack each one very quickly. Okay, start at the top here. We'll start at the word sacred. It's the word holy. Okay? Um, Or in this case, it's incarnational life. And we'll get to that in a second. Go to the right is the word of God. And then compassionate life, a spirit-filled life, a virtuous life, and a life of prayer. All right? Now, the church I used to pastor, I would put up a graphic, and in the middle of this would be our little church icon little thing, our little logo, and put that in the middle. And about every three or four weeks, I would get up and say, hey, just remind everybody, here's our six circles, and here was my question I asked, which I'm going to ask you again at the end, which is this. Which of these do you do really well at? And guess what my next question is. 
Which one do you not? <laughs> okay, Eric just said stink. So, all right. Which one do you not do well at at all? Now, one of these up here is probably not a part of your vernacular, but we'll get there in a minute, and I'll help unpack it. Sorry, I got a cough. <coughs> okay. So, my belief is, and this is just a help and a guide, we put ourselves in the middle. If you could live a life focused on these six circles, how mature would you be? You would end up being a very mature believer in Christ if we focused well on all six of these. Okay? So we're just going to use it as our grid today for that. All right, first one, and the one we probably base more as far as where we start, which it should be, is the Word of God. And so... If we are to be a disciple of Christ, we need to be a disciple of His words towards us. Now, we discussed this summer about when we got to how to study God's Word, about the idea of how it means to do Lectio Divina, how it does biblical meditation. So we asked a couple questions. In what ways have you encountered Christ in reading of the Scriptures? So that should be a common question to us. Number two is, how has the Bible shaped the way you think and live? So one of my favorite authors, his name is Eugene Peterson. You may know him if you've ever read the Message Bible. You know what I'm talking about, the Message Bible? So the man who did that was Eugene Peterson. He died a few years ago. And um, he was a Hebrew and a Greek scholar, professor, and also a pastor. And he wanted to put the Word of God into a language that people today would more readily be able to understand. And so he said this is a lived theology. Not just theology, all these big words over here, and not just the practical part, but how to bring it all together, right? So, one, uh, so he's uh, teaching at the time up in Regent University, up in Vancouver, Canada, his students come in one day, and they said, hey, Professor Peterson, did you hear who loves your Bible? And he's like, no. He goes, Bono. And he goes, who's Bono? <laughs> For most of you know, he's the lead singer of U2, right? Bono, who is a believer, loved the Message Bible, and especially the Psalms. And later in life, before Eugene died, Fuller Theological Seminary brought Bono to Peterson's cabin house up in Montana, and they got to sit down and have, the, and they filmed this whole conversation about their love of the Psalms. Oh, you can look it up. It was beautiful. Of course, it's in a beautiful place, like on a river and it's a mountain. But to listen to these two men discuss about the beauty and the goodness of God, you just listen and go, wow, yeah, I want that every day. I want to have that passion. But it's having a love for the Word of God, studying it, never being satisfied. I've been a believer my whole life. I'm 58 years old, and I still read things. And I look at it and go, what? What was that? How did I miss that? Right? But guess what? At the time, you weren't ready for that yet. But as you get older, you're like, oh, now that makes sense. So uh, one of my favorite things that I give people, and maybe I mentioned this summer, uh, as, a, as a great tool and an aid, if you haven't done this, please do so, BibleProject.com. 
Go to the YouTube channel, go to their app, whatever it is. They have all 66 books with a summary. It takes about eight or ten minutes, all done very creatively. They have themes in Scripture. They even have a thing about how to read the Bible. It's fun, creative, theologically wonderful, and very helpful. Bibleproject.com. It's amazing, and it's free, So, which is really cool. And the guys are amazing people. So in order to be disciples, in order to be mature, we have to know the Word of God, and we have to know it well. Now, the next one we want to move to is the life of compassion. Now, we would think as Christians, this would be normal. But you and I know it's not. So last week at the church I attend, one of the elders got up last week, and he got up and said, um, he was, I think it was at a Meyer store someplace over in Indy. And so they went in there and he was just, you know, talking to the lady behind the counter or whatever and talked about, you know, how nice she was and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, she said, you know, I want to thank you for what you're doing. And, uh, <clears throat> and she goes, well, right now it's nice and calm, which is good. You wait till the Christians come at one o'clock. It gets horrible in here. No one wants to work the shift where the Christians come after church. She says they're the meanest, the most impatient people. He says, she says, we, when we put out this calendar, no one wants to work here when the Christians come. I know. Isn't that horrible? It was terrible. And he had to sit there and listen to that and just like, this, this is horrible. So Christians, we talk about a God who's very compassionate, but, and uh, as being pastors, pastors will also let you know that some of the most hardest people to deal with in the church is guess who? Yeah. We have these kind of weird expectation things. I don't know what it is. We have these kind of weird expectations about how things are going to go, and they don't live up to it, and we decide to complain and grumble, even though the Bible says don't do that. Guess what? Yep, and it's one of those accepted sins in the Bible, right? Like back in the 80s, if you were divorced, you know, it's one of they didn't like put you up on your own cross outside the church and kill you again or something if you were divorced. It's back in the 80s, right? But uh, people don't do, we don't talk about gossip and slander and all those type things, right? And yet, if you look from Genesis to Revelation, guess who gets a good tongue lashing from God, <laughs> right? Read Proverbs 6. And so in that is, that's just a part of recognizing that. But where are we supposed to head? Compassion. Exodus 34. God is introducing himself to his people for the first time. They're in the mountain of God. And God starts off and he says, you are my people. I am a compassionate, long-suffering, long-enduring God. And then he says, and by the way, it takes a lot to get me angry. (laughs) Praise you, God. (laughs) Right? That's who our God is. He leads with compassion and love and long-suffering and taking a long time to get angry. That's how he leads his relationship. Remember the lady thrown down by the Pharisees? Was a prostitute thrown down before him? Right? How did Jesus react? Compassion. He got down, looked in her eyes, pulled her up. Says, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. 
right? So I was meeting with this pastor once, because I also do work at Shepherd's Gate Inn. And I was meeting with this pastor one day, and we were talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. And we talked about how God came and talked to Adam and Eve, Eve in the garden. And I said, you know, I read, you know, read to him, says, Adam and Eve, where are you? <clears throat> oh, we were here, and we're hiding, and oh, okay. <clears throat> he goes, why did you read it that way? Like, why do you mean? How did? Why did I read it that way? <clears throat> you didn't read it right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like, what do you mean I didn't write? He goes, Adam, Eve, where are you? What? He goes, that's how it's supposed to be read. It's like I've never heard anyone read it like that before. I've heard people live like that before. <laughs> Make sense? I don't read it that way. I read of a compassionate, loving God walking in the, in the uh, evening in the dusk. Adam, he already knew what was going on. Adam and Eve, where are you? And then he sacrifices an animal and covers them, fashions their clothes for them. And yes, there is a curse with that. But he treats them with compassion. So we are to be compassion. And of course, the most famous story that Jesus told about this was the good Samaritan who didn't know this person. He knew they were Jewish. And even though other Jewish people who were supposed to care for him did not, the Samaritan loved him, put him on his donkey, took him someplace in an inn and paid for his care and asked for nothing in return. That is compassion. Now, there are certain denominations that do really well at this, but they may not focus much on the word, but they focus on compassion. And what we're asking for is balance, correct? Oh, balance, Daniel son. Okay, sorry. It was there. I couldn't pass it up. So what opportunities God giving you to serve in your last meeting? And I don't mean what Shelby is talking about. That's great. But also just when are you asked to serve? And to care for others. How did you respond? How did you encounter any injustice or oppression of others? And have you been able to work for justice and shalom? So all around you every day are opportunities to serve, to pray, to have compassion, to do something for someone else. And the Lord comes and says, serve. I don't care if you get anything in return. Quick word, guys, married. Guess what? You were called by God to serve your wife and serve your family, serve your neighbor. Correct? Whatever that takes. James 1 says, you don't know how to ask. How am I supposed to love my wife and my kids today? How do I do that? It's an act of compassion. If they see you do compassion, guess what? They will be compassionate. Right? So we'll be able to learn that in that way. Okay, next one. Spirit. So, obviously, within the church and the whole for the last 2,000 years, how the Holy Spirit works in us. I don't know, this guy named Jesus said I was going to send this guy named Holy Spirit, and he's going to come, he's going to give you power and discernment and insight and gifts and help be life inside of you. Right? Right? And that's not only on Sunday mornings. Correct? Amen. It's when you wake up, as you rise, as you lie down, even sometimes while you sleep. Right? 
And so what does it look like to have a life in the Spirit of God? So how have you sensed the influence work of Holy Spirit since we've met? Uh, What are the spiritual gifts the Spirit has enabled you to exercise? What fruit of the Spirit would you like to see increase in your life? You already heard mine. Mine was at the bottom. Self-control. Self-control. Isn't it interesting? It's the last of the nine in Galatians 5. Because I think it's the hardest. (laughs) Right? I had a thing come up on my phone today. Last week, you used your phone 21 minutes less than the week before. Oh, no, I was scared because if I pushed on that button, it's going to tell me how much I actually looked at my phone last week. Yeesh. Probably wouldn't have been too good, right? And I don't play games or anything on my phone, but let's, let's be honest. Right? We have to learn self-control, how to love the people around us. What disciplines might be useful for this effort, okay? Now, let me also say as a part of this, the Spirit of God Hagias Numa is a person. I believe that spiritual maturity, and this may sound really silly and infantile, but it's, it's what it is, that spiritual maturity is only done when our relationship with person of Holy Spirit is mature. You cannot act it out or in any other way You just can't do it without a mature relationship with Holy Spirit. Our dependency on His life, His power, and His voice is essential for maturity. You cannot get there. Right? And I'm not saying what comes from the Spirit. I'm saying Him, who He is. We have to become dependent upon Him. Because I don't know, someone at Jesus said we're supposed to do that. Right? Somewhere. Right? John 15. How am I supposed to be attached to the Father? Where apart from Him I can do nothing if it's not for the Spirit of God. Right? So that attachment to Spirit of God is so, so important. It is essential. All right. Virtuous. Also, um, the word holiness, virtue, holiness, is also applied to this. In Latin, it is sanctus. So if you've, you've all probably heard the song, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy. So virtue, holiness is a part of maturity in God. Okay. Now, as a part of maturity, though, I would say that in an American church, we have a unique distortion of what is holy and what is virtuous. Uh, What's the old thing? We major in the minors and minor in the majors. And I believe personally, as someone who's been counseling with people for 36 years, I I still get amazed. People come in and said, well, you know, God told us or told me not to do this and da, 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 and and I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What does that got to do with God? Nothing. It just blows me away. I'm like, who told you that? Let's go talk to them right now, (laughs) right? Now, where did this start? Now, not where it started. Where did it really blossom within American culture? It's actually this dude, right? This is his fault, actually. A lot of it is. 
and people who'd hear. This guy was from the 1880s. His name, Charles Finney. Not Spinney. Not Sp- Charles Finney. Charles Finney was an evangelist in the northeast part of the United States, New York, and New England area. He had these wild blue eyes, and he went and got ordained into one church, lied all his way through his doctrinal thesis through that. And he would get up, and he is the one who created tent meetings. He is the one who created altars. He is the one who created what was called the anxious seat. He was the one who created hey. Hey, if you want to sit up closer to the show, you got to pay more. Oh, yeah, you say that. You know who just did that? Hillsong. They just recanted a couple months ago. Why do all the celebrities sit up front? They pay for those seats. And Hillsong just came out, and like just a few months ago, within the last year, and said, we're sorry, we probably shouldn't have done that. You're kidding, right? James chapter 3 says, don't do that, right? Where are the poor people sitting in the back, speaking of justice? The poor people need to be up front, right? Corinthian church, all you rich people eat and leave nothing for the poor when they come, right? Well, Charles Finney invented that, right? But here is his greatest sin against the church, human perfectionism. So for those like you, if you don't grow up like me in the King James Version, be perfect for I am perfect, but that's bad. <laughs> Guess what the word actually says? Be mature as I am mature. Now, you and I know that the word perfect, right, is really a bad word, right? Because anyone here? Not here. None of us are perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But mature is the goal. Now, if you have people who have a shame-filled life, are they ever going to live up to perfectionism? <clears throat> no, because there's always something more. <laughs> there's always another to-do list, another checklist to do. But Charles Finney started this idea of spiritual Christian perfectionism, that God's big, high, and lofty goals are way up here, and you are terrible, horrible people, and you need to change your life around and follow this very strict holiness way in order to be good. He's the guy who started it. And then from him, some guy named Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody and some guy named Franklin. No, no. Same was Graham, Billy Graham. Yeah, Billy Graham. This picture is in the Billy Graham Museum of how Billy Graham became Billy Graham. Nothing against Billy Graham, but Charles Finney started all of that. And then now that came out of the early 1900s was these literally holiness movements. And it's all about purity. But here's the problem with that. Now, I may get a little mm <laughs> about that because I deal with this literally almost every day. I cannot tell you how many Christians sit in my little office who have been shamed and shamed and shamed by horrible mean people to make them think they're these terrible godless people and they need to repent. How did God start? How did he introduce to his people? Yeah, compassion. Guess what these people don't have? And they live their whole lives 
filled with shame, not guilt. Shame. You can see the weight on their shoulders. Who did Jesus? Who did Jesus go after? Who were one group of people? He didn't even go after Rome. He didn't even have to go. I mean, he makes fun of Herod a little bit, calling him fox and all that. Who's Jesus spent all his time going after? The religious, right, self-righteous, indignatious, mean-spirited Pharisees and Sadducees. That is who Jesus went after. Why? Because he said, you have taken the keys of knowledge. You are whitewashed sepulchers. You are all beautiful on the outside. The inside, you stink. Where is grace? Where is love? Where is mercy? Now, I'm not saying we don't have improvement. I'm not saying that at all. But let's show a little grace and compassion. Let's help guide people, right? And love them and care for them and disciple them. Let's not play Christian whack-a-mole. Bam! You said a cuss word. Bam! You even looked at her. Bam! You did that. Oh, my gosh. Every day, I sit with people who are just beat up by pastors, by missionary leaders. Oh, it just breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart that I see that. And it just hurt. But in the modern day, here he is. This is who started it. This idea of radical holiness in the church. And people grabbed on to that lesson. Holiness is not holier than thou or religious perfectionism. It is simply a life that works well. Oh, isn't that good? Being rooted in another world, the kingdom of God. Holiness is the power to act as we ought, to be responsible, able to respond with appropriate power, to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Written by Dallas Willard, who's one of the most compassionate, brilliant people you'd ever want to meet. Oh, sorry, I didn't give that to you. I flipped one without the other. Sorry, there it is. If you want to take a picture of that. You and I are kingdom people. We are Jesus followers. And we do believe in purity. We do believe in holiness. But that doesn't mean we beat people up. We love them. We come alongside them. And we do like Jesus did to the prostitute woman. We lean down and say, what can I do to help you? Like we do for those homeless kids every week. Right? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. That we would be excellent and worthy of praise. Now, as I said, I grew up in Hagerstown, Indiana. I graduated in 1982. Yeah. I had PE class. Hadn't really heard of this soccer thing. Us older people know that. Two weeks, two weeks in gym class, we had soccer. All we knew of, and all you old people know, is some guy from Brazil named Pele who could do these amazing things, these bicycle kick things, right? Knew nothing about soccer. I've now had to grow up and coach soccer, watch all my kids play soccer, right? I had to do this. Here's what I'm amazed at. 
Do you see how big those goals are? You ever stood at a high school soccer goal? Look how much black space is in that goal. I have watched countless children kick a ball down a field. Kick, 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 pass. Kick, 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 pass. Boom! Where they kick it? To the goalie! The one person they're not supposed to kick it to. They had all this space. Look at all the space. Look at all this. There, not there. What do they do? They kick it to the goalie. That's nuts. Even one of our girls, she's club soccer. She'll probably go D1 college, right? She was all by herself, had the ball. Boom, goalie, not the goal. What? Same thing when you go skiing or go snow skiing. And they tell you, hey, don't run into a tree. Tree, tree, where's the tree? You find the tree, right? Holiness. Holiness is kicking it to the goalie when you're supposed to kick it into the goal. If you kick it at the goalie, all you're doing is thinking about where you're not supposed to go. I much rather think about where I want to go. And I'm going to go the way of Jesus. Right? I'm not going to spend all day beating myself up about something I hadn't even done yet that was wrong. Right? I want to live for Jesus. I want to follow him. Now, that doesn't mean I don't need to make changes. doesn't mean I don't need to grow in some areas. does not mean that. But my goal is maturity, not on what I'm not doing. All right, prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus got up early. He went off by himself. Why? To go talk to his father. And he showed the disciples every day what it meant to be dependent Upon a conversation with God. Oh, pray like this, he says. He showed them what it meant to pray and to seek the Father. To give praise, to give adoration, to give care to the Father. We begin with adoration for God. We praise you, we love you. We give thanksgiving to God. We petition, ask Him for things. We confess. Now, by the way, confession is two parts in church history. Confession is, yes, a confession of sin. Oop, I really screwed up here, God. Will you forgive me for that? And guess what? He says yes. And guess what? You don't have to worry about it anymore. Let it go. Let it go. You're not meant to hold on to it. Let it go. He already forgave it. Move on. Thank you. Okay, little commercial. Pray. Yes. And renewal. In the middle of Psalm 51, and David is crying after sin with Bathsheba. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, right? Be my shepherd, grass, water, restore my soul. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Pray that prayer. Wherever you're at, Restore me. Restore me. Turn me into the person I'm supposed to be. Would you please do that? Even why I don't even know what that is yet. Can we get there? <laughs> please. Right? And I'm going to add one knot up here. Uh, gratitude. People. I know Thanksgiving's up there, but man, we are to be people of gratitude. Every breath, every meal, every conversation, good or bad. At work, 
driving down the car, hey, whatever. I finally got to stop at Cafe Royale this morning. Got tired of hearing about it, got my coffee there. Gratitude, right? We are to be people over and over. Genesis to Revelation, we are a people of gratitude. It should be, it just should flow off our lips to our Father. Thank you, Father. Lord, you're so good. Thank you. It should just flow. Gratitude should flow. And it's not just about getting things, as you know this. It's about listening. There was an old song in the 80s rang, uh, written by Larry Bryant. It was called Shopping List. If you guys hee-haw people, remember Lulu Roman? Remember Lulu? Anybody remember off a of hee-haw? She actually redid that song. Give me this. I want that. Bless me, Lord, I pray. Grant me what I think I need to make it through the day. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, long shopping list things and to go through this. Prayer is this intimate, wonderful conversation with our Father, Jesus, and Spirit throughout our day. It is our umbilical cord to the Father. To hear His words. To sit and say, I'm here, Father. What do you have for me? And we listen. Now, America... It's really hard. Again, we got that thing we keep looking at. To listen to him. Listen. To be attentive. To move into things. Okay, Father, I got to do this. How do you, what do you want me to do? How am I supposed to act in this moment and think in this moment? Instruct me. Give me wisdom and understanding. Okay. <clears throat> Incarnation. Now, this is what I warned you about that most people don't think about. But Richard Foster is a Quaker. Quakers, Mennonite, Brethren Church, certain parts of denominations do really well at what is called incarnation. Now, in two days will be November 1st, people. Christmas decorations have been out, what, three weeks at Costco, I think. Okay, anyway, we're going to start talking about incarnation. Jesus incarnate in human flesh, and dwelt among us. In carn, flesh, in fleshment. It's Jesus living in us. Spirit of God living in us 24-7. So yes, most pastors, and ask them, what's one of the biggest things you'd wish for your congregation? And they will say, I wish that the people in my church would love Jesus 24-7 and not just on Sundays. That's what they'd all say. Ever since I've been a kid, that's what I've heard people say. Well, this is the answer. Incarnation. What does it mean to live out a life that the Spirit of God is in us all the time? And that we nurture that type of relationship. This sacramental life, as Richard Foster puts it, is the incarnational tradition focuses on the relationship between the invisible spirit and physical reality, helping us to see God's divine presence in the material world in which we live. God manifests himself in creation, even in the midst of mundane activities, whenever and wherever we acknowledge God. <clears throat> now, fallen Indiana, it's easy to praise God. <clears throat> All the colors and the the air just smells better, right? It's an easy time. February? Eh, yeah, not so much. <laughs> Used to be a school teacher. February is the longest month in ever. Because it's like, is this ever going to end? Okay, it's like living in Seattle. And so it's like, will this ever end? Here it is. 
The sacramental life is, as Brother Lawrence put it back in the 1600s, to practice the presence of God. So, Jesse, right? Jesse and Eric and I were talking before we came in. How many of you have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? Very good. So last night, we had a wedding in Richmond last night. My niece got married, and um, I got home. I was tired, but we scrolling through cable, and um, Shawshank Redemption was on. And the, my favorite scene was on. So if you remember, if you haven't seen it, Shawshank Redemption, a guy who's falsely put into prison for years, and there's, he's very intelligent, very wise, and there's a moment where he breaks into the warden's office, locks the door, and puts on an aria, and puts it on the speakers. So this beautiful aria is, goes through the whole prison, and the scene, oh my gosh, the photography of this thing, and the camera scene is out like this, and it's viewing every, everyone stops what they're doing. Everyone in the yard, every guy who is working, every prisoner, mass murders, are sitting there, and they're this. And they don't know what they're listening to, but they know it's beautiful. And then they break the door down and they grab the prisoner and pull him out and throw him into what's called the hole. Nothing. Isolation for weeks. First day out, he comes out, he sits down at lunch with the guys and they're like wondering, how's he doing? Because he was in there a long time. He has a smile on his face. How do you have a smile on your face? Oh, because my conversations. You're in the hole. Who'd you talk to? He said, Mr. Mozart. <laughs> Mozart? What? Yes. They can put me in jail. They can put me in the hole. They cannot take from me music and beauty. He says, it's in here. And it's in here. And they can do what they want to me. They can never, ever take that away from me. And Eric jumped in, of course. Right? That's how it's supposed to be with God. It doesn't matter what happens in our election. It doesn't matter all things that happens in the world. Whether you're living in Ukraine or Florida after a hurricane, guess what? No one can ever do to you. The Spirit of God lives in you. And you can't go anywhere. He is with you and in you. He is to be. He wants. This is crazy. God actually wants to be a part of every little part of your life. Everything. Everything. Every single thing you do, he wants to be there and he wants to share. He doesn't care how ugly or nasty it is. And he loves it when it's beautiful and good. He just wants to share it with you. That's all he wants. For those people married, remember when you first met your wife or husband? You couldn't stop calling, couldn't stop writing, couldn't stop touching. Right? Some wife just now just elbowed her husband saying, yeah, remember that? When you used to love me, <clears throat> the other day, um, I was going to be gone for the whole wedding stuff, and my wife um, puts her pajamas on the bed somewhere anywhere, so I found this little sticky note, and I took little taggy things and made like this little alien bug thing, and I put, I said, sorry to bug you, I love you, <laughs> and put it under a pillow, yeah, not bad after 26 years. Of all of these people, of all six of these, I think the one 
that has helped me most understand maturity in Christ is this one. That Jesus and His Spirit want to be with me in every moment of my life, and I am never alone. So I sat during part of a worship, which I always loved the freedom to be here and to worship. So I got a phone call. I called my friend Jim, who's a pastor in Inner City Church in Indianapolis for 25 years. Found out this time last year he has pancreatic cancer. <coughs> Thought he had beat it, and then he went to the oncologist early last week, and it's back and gives him anywhere between a month and a half to two years, depending on how the treatment goes. I just bawled through the phone call. I don't have a lot of people I can talk about this with, but I can with Jim. And I was back there going, Lord, I just I can't lose him. I just can't. He speaks my language. And that man has served the Lord in ways that none of us could ever imagine. Every day, hearing shots outside his house, loving the people, started the largest free clinic in the United States to help the poor. Ministers to prostitutes, trans people. They have Bible studies in the basement of their church. They have a creative arts ministry. It's just amazing. And he may not be here in two months. But I know, you know, the Lord reminded me. But Mark, I'm here with you. I know. Thank you. Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his and her place. My last word is about models. So models, Jesus said, you come into my kingdom, lay down your cross and follow me. Paul later says, Follow me as I follow Christ. So one of the other things that have hurt in the church in the last 120 years is because maturity has not been the focus and the model of God's people, just like the Corinthian church in the United States of America, we have not grown up women and men who are deep disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have lacked models. And I was listening to a guy the other day in a podcast, and he said, most of my models I never met. I met them in books. Now, I was fortunate, Richard Foster, who wrote that book. So I read that in my early 20s. In my late 20s, I got to go to Colorado Springs to his castle and spend a whole week with Richard Foster. Eat with him, watch him can't tell you what that meant to my life. It was one of, he's not perfect, but he's one of many models. So I sat there night with my mom and uh, everyone else was gone. It was just her and I were sitting there having coffee and bacon, I think yesterday morning. And uh, we were talking about this and I was telling her about the one moment in life, a number of moments that changed my life. But I went to a little college called Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. I went to school there. We were like, 20 minutes from Knoxville, and so when I was a freshman, this very odd person, who I later found out was very gay, but this very odd person who loved Jesus comes to me one night and goes, hey, Goins, we're going to this church tomorrow, and I want to invite you. 
Now, the denomination we were part of looked very much down on this church. And he says, but I would, if you want, pray about it. Would you come with me? So the next morning, I said yes. And I got in a car with these other guys who were seniors. And we drove to this church called Christ Chapel. And it was in Knoxville, one block off of University of Tennessee campus. And I walked in. It was a really cool old church. It's brick, kind of modern and brick and all that. And I sat down, not knowing what to expect. Full house. And they began to worship God. I had never seen or experienced worship like that in my entire life. I just sat there and wept. And my mom asked, why? And she, she had been there when I was in college. I said, Mom, she was, was it because of this. I said, you know what? The Spirit of God in them and the maturity of the people and the maturity of the worship in that place was amazing. And then the speaker got up, the minister, his name was Ken Schmidt, and he got up, his big, beautiful smile, and this guy read a lot of books, but the life of Jesus just poured out of this dude. And so off and on through four years, I went to Christ Chapel. And the model of those people, and Ken, but just the people, and Ken, so permeated my life. And I told my mom, at that moment, and, and along with some other people, God gave me a choice. Do I choose these people who tend to be kind of legalistic and I don't see life in their life? Or do I choose these other people who, in my opinion, are living out Jesus and wanting to serve Him and to live this amazing life with Jesus? Who do you want to choose, Mark? You grew up that way. And from that moment on, in my own life, in my own moment on, every time the Lord presented me with that, guess what I've tried to choose? I want life. I want life abundantly. Because I don't know, some guy named Jesus said that. That's what I want. Models. Read them. Spend time with them. Watch them. Find the people who have maturity and seek after them. Where their mind and their heart and their life is congruent, which is huge, as far as living that out. That is the part of Christian maturity. And it's a huge part. It's a huge part of living that out and seeking out those people and loving Jesus in that way. So the Word of God, prayer, compassion, virtue, right? Living out this life and incarnation, living this way of God. And my belief is if you take that paper and pray through each six of those areas on a weekly basis and say, Lord, help me in my prayer life. Help me in my word life. Help me in my compassion life. Help me in my spirit life. Help me in incarnation, right? Help me in each of these areas, Lord, to live and to grow into you. I believe with the Lord's help and his guidance, you will turn into be and grow into a mature believer in Christ. Now, not only will that what that do for here in this room, what this will do in Newcastle, Indiana. I believe that. I believe that is transformative in who we are. Does that make sense? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. Beyond beyond our imaginations. Your way of grace and truth and love and compassion. 
how you sit with us and listen to us. You serve us over and over again. You do help us lose those things that we're not supposed to hold on to, but you do it in a gentle way, in a restorative way, that we may live in grace and mercy. For New Covenant Church, Lord, for this group of wonderful people, I pray that your Spirit would put within them a yearning and a longing for the deep life of you and maturity. Help them to love one another, to encourage one another, and to bless them in this journey. And may they not only bless you, but bless each other and bless this community that all may turn, Lord Jesus, to you. As Philippians 2 says, our whole goal, that we would bow down and lift up our voices and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus. Bless this church. May your blessings be full and overwhelming on them. Bless the pastors and the leaders. Bless this place, O oh Lord, as they serve you and love you. In your name we pray. Amen.